Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's late Sunday morning, right? Um, July 25. I have a big Achnosis Torah, as I said before. I'm going to see if it's possible to put this out now. I'll do a bio. Today's um, podcast is a little unusual. Um, today's podcast is being sponsored by Moshe Fishman from Muncie, New York. Um, and he he's asking me to, and he's a fan of this podcast and another one. He asked me to say a few words about the other one. So I'll read you what he wrote. Um, this being sponsored by Moshe Fishman of Muncie, longtime listener and fan, who would like to recommend to our audience another wonderful podcast you might like. And the name of this other podcast is The Great Sources with Rabbi Schneer Burton. And I spoke with Rabbi Burton. This is an in-depth look. Let me see. An in-depth look at major topics in Jewish philosophy and Ashkafa. So it's not a history thing. It's like a Ashkafa thing. If you're interested... One minute. If you're seeking to broaden and deepen your knowledge of the fundamental topics of Judaism through their sources, this is a wonderful series that dives right into the most foundational questions. And I spoke to Rabbi Burton. He's a he knows his stuff. So this is this is if you're into Ashkafa type stuff. And I'm reading here season two of the great sources dedicated to question of Yishev Yisrael. The latest one is a summary and conclusion of all the points that pertain to this topic. And he has from season one, of davening, prayer, and how. And number two, the reasons for mitzvot. No, it's Tommy and Mrs. according to Rambam. And he said, Rabbi Burton brings together, analyzes a vast range of sources to elucidate these complex subjects in a gripping and enlightening way. And he told me, we published two swarm on this sort of thing. So if this is what you like, sounds very interesting. Um, this, again, it was Rabbi Schneer Burton. And you just look on the podcast, you'll find it over there, right? I think it's called The Great Sources with Rabbi Burton. So I thank you for the um, sponsorship. Um, happy to do that. I don't have any other sponsors this week. I hope people will step forward for the Parsha and the Haftorah. But we'll see how it goes. Anyway, let me get right down to it. I asked Ari Elbin to send me who's the art site is today. And I saw somebody... You know, in the past, I might not have been interested in going into, but I will today. That's Rabbi Yaakov Cooley. Apparently, his yard site is this week. And that's the guy who put out the Mayim Lois. And I've mentioned before, in the context of the Mishnah Malach, this is a ter- certain type. That's the reason I found it interesting today. You know, as I've said a hundred times, they're not cookie cutters. Not all the rabbis are the same. Obviously, some, just off the top of my head, some are Poskin. Some are Magadshirs, some are, you know, Yeshivish, some are Darshanim, some are philosophers. You know, not everybody's the same. So, Yaakov Kuli, who we'll see is a Sephardic Turkish rabbi, Sephardic Turkish rabbi in the early 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s. Those in the Iker years of the 
Sephardim in Turkey. Um, and that's where the, most of the Sephardim ended up. Ad Kedekach, that they had a whole Ladino culture. I think most of you know, even without I say it, that Mayim Loes, which he composed or started anyway, is in Ladino. It's been translated, of course, but that means he's putting out um, a major you know, work of popular Jewish scholarship uh, in Ladino. That means that was the language over there. Not Turkish, not Arabic. These are not Turkish Jews, that they're Turkey, and they're not Arabic-speaking Jews. That's who Maimonides was like. These are Spanish Jews who ended up kicked out of Spain and kept up their Ladino as a kind of Yiddish, you know, in the Turkish Empire. That this major work was put together in that language. But um, the person we're dealing with over here, oops, um, the person we're dealing with over here lived in the, what I would call the era of the Sephardic elite. The Jews, after kicked out of Turkey in 1492, I'm sorry, kicked out of Spain, ended up in the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which, um, although in 1492, wasn't small, but wasn't as big as it later got. In the 1500s, it kind of doubled in size, maybe even tripled. So it was gigantic. Um, this is the great empire where the Spartan ended up. And listen closely, even if you're not necessarily Spartan, you got Sparty eyes in two senses. One, the Spartan came in and they took over the local cultures. So when they moved to Turkey, it wasn't Spartan then in 1492, but they basically said, listen, guys, we're taking over. You guys are not as smart as us. And the Sparty eyes then for the most part. Same thing happened in the Balkans for the most part. Same thing happened in Egypt, Israel, Syria, Iraq, and places like that for the most part. Uh, same thing the Ashkenaz did in Eastern Europe <clears throat> without going into details now I don't want to get into that so they Sephardiized everybody not only that but if you're Ashkenaz or something like that and you move to the Middle East sooner or later you're going to Sephardiize right not always but usually and our hero is from that because Ryako Kuli actually comes from uh, Crete that's an island off of Greece. At that time, it's no Greece. You know, Greece didn't become an a independent country in the 1800s. So it's part of the Turkish Empire. No, it wasn't. In that area, Greece and Crete and Albania, was constant wars between two teams, A and B. One was the Turks and one was Venice. Isn't that funny? The small city of Venice was a major power at that time and manifested its, its power in its um, naval battles and colonial wars with the Turkish Empire. See, even though it's like a, a, a an insect taking on a giant, but that's what happened. It's a long and very interesting story we can't get into now. This is why in Shakespeare, Othello was a uh, was a mercenary, I mean, it's made up, mercenary general, admiral of the Venetians against the Turks. Imam Shaddad. And Crete was a, a Selahamachlikis, it's a strategic island, very often, so the Venetians ruled it. So the Jews there are Jews of Venice. I have spoken about Jews of Venice. It's a very distinct type. It's not exactly Italian, but is that not exactly not Italian? Right? It's not Sephardic. It's Venice. Okay? Leona Modena was like that, for example, off the top of my head. Uh, uh, what's his name? Pardo was like that. You know, it's a certain type. And they had their big scholars. And so our hero 
It's from uh, Crete. And actually, it's Ashkenazic if you want to go all the way back. However, if you know your history, and there's no reason that you should, there were some major wars in the 17th century. Uh, all through the 16th and 17th century, suffice it to say, in the middle of the 17th century, the Turks won and conquered the island and uh, kicked out a lot of the Venetians. And uh, a lot of the Jews fled. And in our case, this family, Kuli, moved into the Turkish Empire to Yerushalayim. Um, he wasn't poor, but his business is wrecked. Now, why would you move to Yerushalayim in the 1600s? Actually, in 1669 is when the Turks uh, captured the final part of Venice, of uh, Crete. And uh, our hero was born in 1689, 20 years later. So his father moves, like some other Jews, to Yerushalayim because he wants to go to a major Malcolm Torah. Isn't that interesting? I mentioned on previous occasions that there was an attempt by Sephardic in the 1600s to start, I won't say a state of Israel because that's an exaggeration, but to start a significant issue in Eretz Israel and do so in a very Torahic way by making Yerushalayim uh, how would I put it? A super yeshiva and a super kolel. And like Lakewood, that will cause people to move there and a community will build up a mail. It's not a dumb idea. Didn't exactly work, but it's not a dumb idea. The only thing is, where do you get the money? And the answer is, the rich Italian Jews and the Portuguese Jews in, in Leghorn and Livorno. You understand? You have some millionaires over there. That time, people were sufficiently from, even if they themselves weren't in learning but they're willing to bankroll a serious situation. And you had these very rich uh, Jews in Livorno, and uh, they paid. This is Yaakov Chagiz, the father of Moshe Chagiz, uh, the Halachas Kitanos. And Yaakov Chagiz, in the 1650s, I think it was, whatever, uh, got the money together, and then he recruited serious guys for a super kolo, and that brought in serious guys for a super yeshiva. He had big plans. No, let me put it this way: if these, it's not a dumb idea. It just requires a lot of things to fall into place. Uh, Lakewood today has what five, six thousand guys, right? Uh, uh, Mir and Yerushalayim, Panavish, those kind of places. Now, obviously, the state of Israel, and America, is a different thing than them. But suppose he would get a thousand guys. He wouldn't, but you know, suppose he get five hundred guys, six hundred guys. That would make Yerushalayim as kachzich. The, the, the population of Yerushalayim was very small. The Gaisha population. So the Jews become very significant, and just through natural increase, the Jews have become a big element there. That was the general idea. Plus, of course, very uh, firm and Torahic, and therefore everything would work out in their minds, bring Mashiach in that way. So it's very early. It, it, it deserves a lot of discussion on some, but I can't go into it now. It's like a proto-Zionism of the 17th century, obviously in a very firm way. Um... So, our hero's father was one of these guys. He, his situation in Crete was ruined. I'll go to Yushalayim, get in on this new adventure that's, that's turning up. And he went there, and um, he met in Yeshiva, and he, got, and he was a good guy. I think he met Rashiba's daughter. And um, when she died, how does it go? The... Doesn't really matter all this to you, but I'm just giving you the facts. 
there were two big rabbis there. He married one, the daughter of one, and she died and married the daughter of the other. I forget which order it comes to. It doesn't matter. First, he, I think he married the Russian. She was daughter, and then he, when she died, he married like one of the big heavy hitters there, the Maram Chabib. This is the father of our hero. So what I'm trying to say is, here's a guy, our hero, Yaakov Kuli. He was born in 1689. His father is like a hot item in the Kolo there. I think he wasn't poor. Um, I know how they transferred their money from Crete, but let's say he did. Uh, as far as prestige goes, the Hamonim, the Sephardim, don't know anything. But the rabbinical elite is very extremely impressive. See, his mother's father, right, was Marm Chabib. No, he's from the second wife, I guess. And uh, if you don't know who the Marm Chabib is, I don't blame you, but let's put it this way. He's from the very big heavy hitters. This is a golden era of the Sephardim in terms of pure learning uh, when they set up this super situation in Yerushalayim. Uh, the pre was there, one of the students. Uh, the, uh, what do you call it? <clears throat> Machna Fryan. Uh, some big guys. Names that even you guys have heard of. And Maram um, Chabib is the Get Pashat. So he became the, when the Rashiva died, he became the Rashiva, the Rishon Lezion and all that sort of thing. Yushalayim. And he wrote some very serious form. Anybody knows anything with the Get Pashat? That's big. And the Kapas tomorrow he wrote. And uh, I don't know, some famous thing. Tosis Yom Kippurim he wrote. He, he knows he's not, I would say, he's clearly among the top 10 scholars or something like that, top 20 scholars of the 17th century. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, so the Ashkenaz is also interested in East Farm. So our hero is therefore the grandson of, of a famous person. Now, um, so he grows up. I'm, I'm just trying to make make it real. You're, you know Yerushalayim, and you know it's the old city, of course, and it's the 1600s, before the Ashkenazim came, in any numbers. Um, <clears throat> you live near the Kotel. Obviously, it's under the Muslims. You got to know what you're doing. Don't get up at eight. Don't, 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 you know, obey the rules. You die by the Kotel when they let you, and so on and so forth. That's the life. And in the Jewish neighborhoods, in the old city, that's where they have their schools and yeshivas and whatever. That's how it goes. So our hero didn't grow up as a regular Jewish boy. He grew up as a member of the elite, the grandson of the elite. And he's talking and learning, so to speak, since he's young. And his father, you know, took the learning very seriously. And so he raised a boy, as people did at that time in the 17th century. He saw Filet Keturah, you know, made him learn a lot and live a life of, um, you know, super learning. Uh, what's the right word? No luxury and stuff like that. As a result, he became a major scholar. Our hero, Yaakov Kuli. Eventually he moved to Tzfat. And he got the idea, his grandfather, the Maram Khabib, died when he was very young, like 40. And this is a certain type of person that I even know today. You, I'm not comparing them, but I'm just trying to bring out a point. You yourself may not be anything special, but your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your uncle, <clears throat> was a big guy. But his farm never got published. And it bothers you and the family that the world doesn't know how to appreciate your grandfather, your uncle, whoever it is, your cousin. And you're going to move heaven and earth to get the books published in order to bring him the recognition you feel he deserves. 
So that's our guy. The only difference is he himself was special. I just said it like this. I'm thinking of a guy, you know, theoretically, in Baltimore, in New York, in Lakewood, in, in Yerushalayim, in, in Bnei Brock, and he could be, you know, he's just a regular guy, but like I say, his grandfather was there. And uh, remember a couple of years ago, they put out this super deluxe Nota Behuda. I heard of some rich guy who paid a kolel to work on a young Belayla. Nothing wrong. It's very good what I'm saying. Nothing wrong with this. The guy himself who paid the kolel was a rich guy. He himself wasn't a big learner. But he hired a full-time call to go and work on this and put it out that way. That's good. Obviously, he wanted the note of you to be known better with all the fruit salad, you know, all the uh, commentators and the critics. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a major work. This is not unpopular today. Matter of fact, a lot of times you go to a bookstore, you'll see, you know, some safer published for the first time since 1850 of some Hungarian robe nobody heard of before. He redesigned the family got together. Now, he could be a very cultural person. Never heard him before, just as, as a luck. And now they're republishing it. I haven't been in New York forever. We used to go to Beagleizing and see these things all the time. All the time. Right? So our hero is going to be very filial pietistic. Very much into wanting the memory of his grandfather and things like that to be known. I repeat, there's nothing wrong with this. And so, he wants to get his, his, his sovereign his manuscripts published. Apparently, Maram Khabib, like all these guys in Yerushalayim, had, you know, serious scholarship, but they never printed it because no printing press in Palestine. So if you want to get published, you had to go to Constantinople, Istanbul, which was the capital of the Turkish Empire, which requires money and this and that and the other. So that's what he did. Here's our hero, a young guy, very learned, a good learner himself, I would say a major learner, but he wants to get the, you know, the get Pushet published, the Kappa Storm, and all these other things. I was grandfather, who's a bigger learner. And so somehow he gets the money, he sells to this symbol. He contacts the local rabbin over there. They see this guy knows how to learn. And second of all, they all knew who Maron Khabib was. Now here comes the funny part. I don't have this exactly down. I don't know if anybody does, but I'm going to tell you the way I understand. That's all I can ever do. In Yerushalayim, I'm sorry, in Istanbul, he met the top Talmud Chacham there. The number one dude. The top Talmud Chacham was the Mishnah Melch, Yudah Rezanis, who um, I've spoken about before. Yudah Rezanis was a very big businessman. Remember, they used to supply the Turkish army. I spoke about that earlier. I can't cut that over. They had to do with the government, government contracts, things like that. And my goodness, you know, can imagine the bribes and this and the Turkish government contracts. We'll leave that alone. <laughs> but um, they had armies of 100, 200,000 men. So, you know, you call them serious bucks. Now, this Yudor Yuzanis said, you're very impressive. You yourself are a very good learner. I don't know if, what I'm going to do about um, your father itself. And maybe we can find somebody to help you with that. Meanwhile, I want you to become a dying on my basin. This is a high honor. And more important, it's a Parnasso. You know, I don't say you get rich, but it's a Parnasso. And to be a member of the basin of Constantinople, which was the number one capital city on the entire Turkish Empire, was itself extremely cultural position. Right? Arguably more than Yerushalayim, or at least like Yerushalayim. Here's a young guy. 
his whole life he didn't live that long. I think our hero lived also he died in his forties, early forties. So you know, in those days you just gotta understand uh, the health situation stunk, especially in the Middle East. They had Bichlal, no idea about health. Plagues used to come all the time and just carry off a lot of people. They simply didn't know what to do. Their ideas of medicine were wrong. Imagine, to give you a bashbel, it's like they would be hit a corona. They simply wouldn't know what to do. Whoever died, died. Whoever didn't, didn't. Actually, a lot of these people didn't live long. A plague would come. Somebody gets off the ship, brings the plague. There's no cure for it. Whoever dies, dies. So you get what they call the herd immunity. You know, so um, nobody lived long over there. So in our case, he becomes a dying in the basin. That shows you itself that he was considered like on that level to Paskin to deal with Shilas. Correct? You know, think about that. You're getting questions, halakhi questions from all over the Turkish Empire. And you're talking learning with Yehuda Rezanis, the Mishnah Melch. But he wasn't the Mishnah Melch. Yehuda Rezanis, like the Marm Khabib, didn't live that long. And they're talking and learning all the time. When they have cases in with you don't have cases. And Yudah Razan has had like a yeshiva also. And here's our hero participating in all this. The difference is the following. Now listen close. Some people have a natural talent to have good notes and some do not. Many gadolim or the type, they're not necessarily the greatest notes. We all know people that We've had our class when we were students otherwise. This guy has the best notes. This girl has the best notes. Why? That's where they are. And when I say the best notes, first of all, they're comprehensive. Second of all, they're clear, they're well-written, and they get it. This is a well-known theme. So it's clear. A guy like the Mishnah Melech was very brilliant, but he, didn't, he wasn't a good note-taker. Right? His notes not clear. Uh, and they're disorganized. Our hero used to sit in and take the best notes. This I see, you know, the 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 Chidor, who later on wrote his book on um, what's it called, Shema Gedolim. If you look, when he talks about Marm Chabib. I want to read this. Marm Chabib, among other things, wrote the Ezra's notion on uh, Aguna questions, because Marm Chabib was a very big Aguna guy, and he says over here. Mm. He's talking about the fact that our hero uh, put it together and published it. But Shamati, now remember, the Chido is writing this not long afterwards in the 1700s. But Shamati Kedushas Vachasidis Mari Kuli, so I've heard a lot about the Ryako Kuli, Ushkedosa Batoro. For Isi, but countries in Mimenu, and I've seen manuscripts, and notice the Chido himself was in Constantinople. And like a historian, and he is a historian among other things, he saw a lot of the original manuscripts from the discussions in the yeshiva of the Mishnah Melech. Shekol mashal yimachachim b'yeshivas agoro, Rabbi Gol Marie Rosanis, b'chevever abonin, that everything in the discussions that they would have in the yeshiva of the Mishnah Melech, ha'yikosi b'shmam, so our hero was the secretary. And he wrote it all out. And so on and so forth. So I think that plainly means that, that they would have um, 
how should I put it? They would have Bayesian sessions, and let's say they have a hard question, and they argue it out, and this and that and the other. Who's the note-taker, and who gets the final version? Our hero. See, he was built that way. Do you get it? And so he forgot about putting out his grandfather's stuff, and he got totally into this. So basically, being a member of the Bayesian over there is not a, 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 a nine-to-five job, but it's a 24-hour job. He got really sucked into it, and he liked learning, <clears throat> and this really, you know, engaged him. Nothing wrong with any of this. Eventually, the Mishnah Melch died, and his family, which was rich, they said to Yaakov Kuli, listen, we will pay you. We know you need the money. And you organized his suburb, and uh, which was a major back-baking work. It took years. He was willing to do it because he was a fan of Mishnah Melch, and he needed the money. I'll say it again, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And so, um, he put in the time. He's the one who put out the precious drachim, which is amazing that he did that, because it means that the Mishnah Melch himself, those drushes, and I spoke about this when I did the Mishnah Melch, which is so famous and complex, were not actually put by the Mishnah Melch, meaning a little here, a little there, but Yaakov Kuli, who constructed it as a major literary work, which means he wasn't only good as a note-taker, he was literarily talented to edit things. And that's a separate talent. And again, rabbinical literature don't always have good editors. You know, who says Rabbi Kivega was a good editor or something like that? They may have the material. It's a separate uh, uh, um, talent to put everything out in a nice format. <clears throat> Today, at least me, makes all the difference in the world if a, bo if, if a book is safe or anything is well-edited got good notes and this and that and the other, or not, okay? In case well, the material is good, yeah, but it's boring till you get to it. Or it's a turn-off, the way it's written, or it's unclear. It's unclear, I'm not going to bang my head against the wall and this and that and the other, unless I had a reason to. You know, if I need some particular part. On the other hand, something's written well, edited, that's why you like the Rambam, you know? Because it's, it just flows. So Yaku Kuli just had that talent. Now, he went, never went to college, he just had a nature, natural talent. It's just very interesting. And so he created the precious drachim, and then he put together the Mishnah Mel, which means he took all these notes that he had from the from the uh, Rizanis, and he organized them according to the Rambam. That's just the, the way he decided to organize them. He could have organized those notes according to Shas. He could have organized those notes according to um, the, the Shukrach. He chose to do it according to the Rambam, which is understandable because the Rambam is very organized and clear. So the point is, he's spending his best years in life editing somebody else's stuff. Now, it's a Galador, it's a classics, so it's not the like a some guy in Kolil in, uh, I don't know, Lakewood or Punavish who needs the money just editing somebody else's stuff. That's good too. You're talking about like the the, the Rosh Hashiva, the uh, post-Sekador. I mean, Mishlamach. Okay, fine. So now he's, I don't know how old, in his 30s, 40s, whatever it is. He didn't live long. I think he died in his early 40s, so whatever. Then he says like this, I'm spending all my time up by other people's stuff. What about me, myself, and I? Now that doesn't make you selfish. It's a, selfish in Torah is a good I don't mean it with bad character traits. A person should be ambitious to have his stuff out there if you got it. So now comes something extremely interesting. That's why I find him an interesting person. 
so far I've described a certain type, which is more common in Jewish history than you know, just we usually don't know the names of these um, editor types. You know, most of the Rishonim and things like that didn't edit and publish their own stuff. The Rambam did. Many, many others did not. And, uh, I mean, I'll just give you the easiest example in the world. Who made Rashi? I mean, did this guy named Rashi sit down and edit all of his stuff? I don't know. You don't, Nobody knows. It's well edited, <laughs> right? You get my point? Who did that? Or if you wish, Tosa. Tosa, we have a better idea. The first stuff was like flop, plop all over the place. You know, the first layer of the writings. And then it was seriously edited and cut down and, and, and put together in a nice way by the Rajbo. Not the Rajbo, but the Rajbo. And then it was even edited after that. So the process of fixing, uh, you know, is very important. Otherwise, you have a diamond that's not polished. He said, what am I going to do for myself? However, and this is the easy, the interesting part. He could have proceeded to do the following. I'm going to publish my own Chidush Shemunshas. Or I'll put out my own Shalos and Shubas. That's the usual way of the Sephardic elite. And that's how you get, or any elite, and that's how you get creds in that world. Oh, the Mishnah Lamel. Oh, you know, like that. Oh, the Kappas tomorrow. These are famous Lamb that say. It's the kind of thing that the Hamon and Amsa like is. I have no idea what they're talking about. This is above my pay grade. There's the big rabbis talking all that incomprehensible stuff. Look how learned they are. I don't understand a single word of the safer. It must be very chashev. I can't make out a single word. And as we all know, that's not what he decided to do. Because he realized that what you need more is a man lois. In other words, he put aside um, the regular way, which would bring him fame as a great rabbi, a great scholar, and instead, he said, I want to be art scroll. And I would say that um, the 1600s and early 1700s <clears throat> sees indeed uh, the great era of the first layer of art scroll, which is a major theme, in my opinion, in Jewish history, to which not enough attention is paid. If there's anybody out there that's looking for a, an article, a thesis to write, and so forth, you know, um, if that's what they want to do, so um, you can write on the history of art scrollism or popular. Uh, what I mean by that is, of course, is the popular presentation of Torah knowledge in a in an attractive and, and compelling and uh, coherent literary form. So it's just interesting. Two books come out more or less at the same time, roughly. One in Yiddish and one in Ladino. In Yiddish, it's the man. Uh, it's the uh, what do you call it? Oi, Tenorena, and in the Ladino, it's the male noise. <clears throat> they're not exactly the same, but they're similar. In each case, you're trying to present in the regular sprach, uh, using the vehicle of the parsha of the week, and access to the public into advanced Torah knowledge of some sort or another. That's a big trick to pull off. <clears throat> like I said, that's the art school Steinzel type thing. It's not easy to do that. It looks easy when it's all over. It's not easy to do that. Now, the, the Tenorana did it in this way, and the Man Lewis did it in an even bigger way, because Yaakov Kuli was a bigger guy than the guy who put out the Tenorana. Not that the guy who put out the Tenorana was a dummy, the opposite. But he's not Yaakov Kuli. Okay? Um, and it means 
that he's writing something in Ladino, and he felt he had to apologize for it. He said, listen, you know, the Rambam wrote in Arabic, <laughs> you know, thinking of Asadi going to write in Arabic, because he was doing something that was not regular. You know, I'm sure, there's no question in my mind, when he started working in the Mayam Lowe's, so, um, he said, what are you wasting your time with that stuff? As for it, Hamon, I'm there, a bunch of dumbbells anyway. Just give them some bone mices and, you know, don't, don't waste your time. There are plenty of Magidim and stuff like that to go and take care of the public. And he said, no, I want to do middle brow culture, as I always call it. You want to raise, if possible, the general oilam out there to a higher level. They won't be specialists. They won't be great Chachamim, but to know a heck of a lot if they go after it. And that's why he wrote the Mayim Lois. And uh, he died in the middle of it. So notice he never got around to publish his own Chedushim, the Shalos and Shubas. Maybe that stuff has come out there now. But it doesn't get much play because, you know, he's relatively unknown as a famous rabbi. Although, I tell you again, the guy spent decades as a member, a dying on the basin of Constantinople, which itself is pretty big, together with the Mishnah Melch and some other heavy hitters. So he himself was not a popularizer, Tom DeVeltran. He was a major post-it, Tom Chachem himself. These guys dealt with a, a gun of questions and, I mean, you name it, you know. This is serious stuff. Now, um, the thing is that uh, to finance this, he made a deal. He was a firm guy with a rich Jew who said, Yudah Mizrahi says this, in Constantinople, who was a high-minded person, apparently, and the rich Jew said like this, I'll pay you for your expenses, your time, not a lot of money, I'll pay for the publication of a book in Ladino, and profits above that go to Eretz Israel, to the poor in Israel. And he says this in Octometer's book. So that means, by writing this, he was doing a chesed, among other things. Because the profits to this, and the book would turn out to be profitable. To the Sephardim is, you know, bought up, like the, like the Jews, the, like the Yiddish-speaking Jews used to buy a lot of the Tzanarena, so the Sephardim did a lot of the Memlois, because this is the Ladino, meaning in the in the semi-Spanish stuff in Hebrew letters. Same way Yiddish is the semi-German in the Hebrew letters. And so um, the profits went to uh, the special fund for Aniyei Eretz Yisrael, for Yushalayim and Sfas. Since he lived in Sfas, he said it should go half for Yushalayim and Sfas, but that doesn't matter. And so the result is, he went to work putting together the Mayim Lois. He died after Bracious, or maybe in the middle of Shmos, I forget exactly where. And others later on picked it up. They're not quite as good as him, but nevertheless, whatever, it's a major uh, work. Now, I'll be honest with you. As Chatai and Nimaskar, I never really paid sufficient attention to Mayim Lois, because of time and other elements. When I was young, that's when, uh, when I was very young, that's when they started translating into Hebrew. You know, it was always in, in the Ladino, so that's a foreign language. Uh, in the 67, whenever it was, that's when they put it out in um, Hebrew. And then, um, what do you call it? And then, whew, Ari Kaplan did in English. I bought one or two, I still have my house, like one or two, but first of all, you can never go and buy a hundred volumes. You know, it's like a belt of volumes. And second of all, I don't know. I never got into it. Um, I had it. 
I rarely did I use it. Um, it's not who I was. But you're going to laugh at what I'm going to say. I don't care. Not long ago, they republished now with Manu Card and all the rest of it. That itself attracted my attention. <laughs> and they have excellent footnotes. And I'll be perfectly honest, I started looking for the first time. And I saw the, the range of the footnotes. And it's amazing. It's Mamish Encyclopedia. It's very useful. Uh, one could do very well by making a Seder, even if you're Ashkenaz, it's got nothing to do with that. A very good well in, in the Parsha of the Week with the, with the Mayim Lois, especially with the Nakudos and things like that. I mean, with the, um, I didn't mean that, I meant with the uh, footnotes. You can look it up yourself. It's from Shulchan. Now, he's got everybody in there up to his time. By that, I mean, he's got the Rishonim, like Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Ramban, and all this stuff, obviously. He's got the Ram, the Barbanel, that tells you already. He gathers a whole bunch of people together. On his own, he knew Shas and Postkim, so therefore he brings all the Agathas was necessary. He knows everything. He also brings guys like um, the Efei Tower and the others, the good commentaries on the on the Shas and the Midrashim. He's got these Sephardish guys, people nobody heard of. He has the best of the Sifri Drush in there. If there's a good word from Azariah Figo, from Venice, Vinalitim, he's got it in there. It's Mamash Potpourri. And I think it's not possible to go through um, the partial week and not come up with a word if you need one. Cause it's, so I thought it's like had a different character. But now that lately I read it more often, not often enough, but more often, I see it's an encyclopedia. It's the same way like the Minichas Chinichas to the Chinichas encyclopedia. To me, i like an encyclopedia. And of course, he throws in the Halacha stuff, Halacha Maisa stuff. <coughs> now again, if you're asking us, it's, it's almost the same. Maybe in, in Shechita it's a little different. Everything else is the same. And he even says there, you know, he has a very interesting introduction. It's very long, though. But you could do a lot worse than reading his introduction. And um, he says, I have ten goals. Hamatari Shona Laman Yedu B'nei Adores Hamitzvah Geish Lekanvis Averis Kesalis Rachiman To teach basic halacha to the Hamuna Hamatar. You're dealing with the traditional Jewish community. Everybody knows what to do, more or less. I emphasize the words more or less. But, you know, when you do more or less, you get a lot wrong. As you see in all the books of the postkin, say we have the rabbinic scholarly sensibility. In other words, everybody knows what you do on Shabbos. Except they don't, <laughs> right? You know, nobody knows exactly what the tea and what the fire and what the this and what the that and the bower, right? You know, generally, but you know, you know what your parents did, but you know. And so if you read my book, You'll get the details right. People make mistakes not knowing what they are. Same thing with kashras. Same thing with a lot of things. Right? Nido. The Hamonam knows basic. They make a whole mistakes in there. Uh, the second reason is to know the great miracles that have passed to give you faith. Mm, very interesting. When is he writing this? Early 1700s. Where is he writing this? Ottoman Empire. What's going on in the Ottoman Empire? It's the Sabatianism. It's the Golden Age. Maybe I shouldn't use the word Golden Age. It's the, it's the peak Golden Age of Sabatianism. What's the Sabatianism all about? You're, the, you're knocking the Torah of You understand? You want to replace it with Shabtai Tzvi type stuff. 
either from the Zohar or from other places. Um, here is a guy writing a major thing, sharing the Shas uh, with the with the with the Hamunam. So this is very interesting. Let me tell you right now, if this guy was on the Basin in Constantinople in the Turkish Empire, when Sabatian was running wild, and in, in Turkey, they did not have Yaakov Emdens. That's not the way they dealt with it. The Sephardim were more loose goose. And, you know, um, they said, listen, you know, it'll pass, it'll pass. <clears throat> right or wrong? Right or wrong? I mean, if a guy was an out-and-out open Sabatian, the Basin would go after him, but they, they weren't crazy about doing that. And here's a guy, it's very interesting to me, around 1730, whatever it is, who says, you want to know something? Rather than concentrate on punishing the bad, let's light more lights and shed more light. And that'll mamela drive the bad out. The the the, the, the flourishes in a, in a vast population of dummies. If we raise through middle bar culture the Torah knowledge level of the dummies, they won't be so dumb anymore, they won't fall for the Sabatianism. That's actually a very enlightened way of dealing with a problem of heresy. So by the time you finish going through, you know, um, the Mam Lois, I'm not going to say you're fortified against Sabatianism, because that's too too glib. But you're fortified against Sabatianism. You know, so you know a lot. And so they can't pray on your ignorance like they would. Uh... That's why he wants to know the Nisan that God did. Hamatar Shlishis. Again, Shnaim Mikarecha Targum. Again, it's very interesting. We have Shnaim Mikarecha Targum, but as everybody knows, what if a guy can't read Aramaic, all the rest of them? So nowadays they'll say, read Rashi. You've heard that before, right? He says, what do, the, the people I'm dealing with can't read Rashi either. Doesn't mean anything. The same dumb Sparty guy out there who's got a little shop who can't understand Rashi, same way he can't understand Unculus. I'm going to write something in English, or Ladino. Daddy can read. And the Ladino will share the Torah show with them. So you do Shnayim, Mikar, Vechad, Mehem, Lois. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, I think I told you I was once in... Um, that's like a guy today in America. Well, now you, everything's in English. But suppose you said, Shnayim, Mikar, Vechad, Stone, Chumash. Uh, it's a little funny, but I hear it. I hear it. You understand? Or something, you know, something along those lines. Um, many years ago, I remember there was a guy in the Shomre, in the Shul here, long ago, and he was a BT, he knew nothing. And I remember he invited me, he said, I'm making a scene. Really? you making a scene? Him and another guy made a scene on the Art Scroll Center. I was taken aback for a minute, and I was almost going to laugh, but then I said, there's nothing to laugh at. There's nothing to laugh at. This was his way of doing it. He mamish learned like a Seder with a guy every day, a couple pages from the art school Seder. And he picked up a lot. You know what I'm saying? You have to respect that. So he's saying here, use this for Shnai Mikarech Targum. The fourth one is to deal, Liyashiv is Hashelis and Mesurus of Parshas. To deal with a biblical um, analysis. Parsha of the week. Right? And that's why he has all some Mepharshim in there. Okay? Um, and he says, I'm not going to do the Barbanel style to ask 100 questions. That's not for the Hamunam. You get it? I'm going to give you the you know, the, 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 the conclusions. And then he says, The Tarot and Melchomus share with Sinbi Me'am Lachem, to teach Jewish history. Because he intended to do the Tanakh. He died. It was, it was a chance. Let me put it this way. 
he planned to spend the rest, the second half of his life working on a, a massive Mayhem Lewis on Tournament, which he would have pulled it off, would have been just unbelievable. All in Dino. Right? Now, um, say so he said like this, I, want, I would like to teach the Jewish... Nobody knows any Jewish history. And I'm talking about biblical history. They didn't know, was Yoav a king? Was he a prophet? Did he live before Moshe Rabbeinu? That's the way the Olam is. I'd just like to get the story straight. Hamatara Shlishis, Lahavi Dini Choshen Mishwan. Isn't that interesting? I want to teach the public Choshen Mishwan. What do you mean by Choshen Mishwan? Ooh, all the heavy, basic stuff. Kiyesh Bozet Tawelis Gedolis Sokrim. People who are in business. This will be a Tawelis because they don't know the Halachas. Kiharbe Palmi Marino. Shebegal Chosa Yudib Bemitzvah Satora. Alul Autumn Loretis Menchosov. He said, I see a lot of people go broke because that time is pure capitalism. You make the wrong move or the market changes or there's a war breakout, you lose your whole business. He says, I've seen a lot of people go broke because they didn't follow the Dina Mechosh Mishpah. Isn't that interesting? And therefore they were punished. It's a ribis, basic is a bottle, you know. In other words, in the basin, he's seen in life that way. And he also seen in Bayesian that way. A guy will come in and the Bayesian has to say, this contract is not enforceable because it was based on ribbits or something like that. So I want the public to know, believe me, I happen to know this, businessmen in America are always complaining, so we don't know what the rules of the Bayesian are. You know, we come in, we don't know what's going to happen to us because we, you know, they don't tell you the rules when you write the contracts. They say, I want to be, make it clear. I'm trying to show you what a broad uh, a view he had. Uh, the seventh Matara, so, to give you a digest and encyclopedia of all the Gemara stories, like you would say to the Enyakov, to keep you away from all the Geisha history books. So apparently these guys used to read, the Hamonon was reading popular literature in uh, Ladino and things like that, <coughs> that were, you know, uh, not from. And they spend so much time reading this uh, secular stuff during the week. And on Shabbos and on Yontif, and this way, I'm going to include in the Parsha of the Week interesting stories from uh, Chazal. And it will be interesting for you to read. Everything I'm saying now is Art Scroll, it's Steinsalz, it's Feldheim, and so on and so forth. You're trying to provide, or what's his name? Um, Marcus Lehman. You're trying to provide reading material for the home. No rabbi had done this. Certainly not in the Sephardic world. You get it? They're writing heavy-duty, fancy-schmancy stuff, which is very hush no question about it. Shminis, Lataris Amigdash. You know, Hanhogas Koengadol. Again, what does the public know about Avodis Yom Kippur or anything like that? In the 1600s, right? And he's going to make it up in the rear. Hamatar Hachis, almost at the end. Shekolasi put Levar Mailas Hatar Shekolasi Purim, Mechlin Ramazim Chashubim. To approach the Torah from an ideational uh, point of view, to see, I guess, what you'd say today, the Musar Haskel, and then and the nice um, lessons of life that we get from the Parsha of the week. And finally, he says, the tenth purpose is to raise money for Israel. 
So I'm, I'm, I'm raising this as money, you know, the, let's put it this way. You know, if you buy this book, you're contributing tzedakah towards Eretz Yisrael. Uh, which, by the way, was at that time in a financial crisis. I've spoken about that on other occasions. And the Basin got together to try to do something to fix the extreme financial crisis. Jews in Israel, which ended up as Constantinople millionaires taking over and running the show there for the you know, rest of the part of the 18th century. Uh, but I don't know if Yaakov Kuli was exactly part of that. He, he probably was. Um, but anyway, this project, which he died in the middle of, uh, is a major element in um, modern Jewish culture in the Sephardi world. Again, when I say Sephardi world, I'm talking about the real Sephardi, not like the Iranians or something like that. I mean, the real Sephardim who spoke Latino, because there's no use to the others. You get it? If, you know, if you're a Jew from the Middle East and you didn't speak Ladino, then it's, it's a bupkis. So he had a very interesting and targeted audience. The Jews, like himself, although he himself, well, let me put it this way. His father's side was Ashkenaz, but his mother's side was Marm Chabib, was Sephardic. Marm Chabib is a very Sephardic family. They come from, uh, what's the name? Namuka Yosef. You know, back in Yosef Mim Chabiba back in the uh, in Spain itself. So he's writing for we say the Jews of the Balkans, of the of Asia Minor, of Turkey, of Syria and Israel and and, and Egypt, of North Africa, anywhere just the same way all across Europe, Northern Europe was a Yiddish, you know, from France to 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 Ukraine, all over the place. So in the time I'm talking about, all throughout the Balkans, which is South Eastern Europe and uh, is the Middle East and so forth and North Africa is all Ladino speaking. And so this book took off. Uh, the best proof is that when he died, it was picked up by others. And they did Shmos Vayikar and so forth. Um, I think somebody much later did like, you know, Miguel Sester and all that's why you see that around. You know, much later. And the point is like this. So he started a style, just like the art scroll is a style. doesn't mean the same guy wrote all the art scroll books. It's a style. So he started this style, and for that world, it, it was uh, vitally important. Uh, and it was indeed like the Middlebrow culture. It picked up the level of the Hamona. Now, I'm not saying it picked up everybody. You know, you had to be a certain type. If you read the regular Sephardish rabbis, they're complaining about the same junk in the 1800s already as they were in the 1500s. Just look at, what's his name, the um, Pelioes, people like that. Nevertheless, I'm sure, and I mean this, there's no. if you didn't make 100% of the Hamonam more enlightened, there's no question in my mind that you certainly made a third or, or 40% or 50%, I don't know, you know, a, a decent number, much better. Right? Here you have to imagine Sephardic women, uh, just like the Tenorena, Sephardic women reading this stuff. You have to imagine that you're in the 1700s and in Sephardic shoals, instead of a Hebrew Mishnayis or something, they have a Hebrew in the, uh, you know, in the Mamloes. And I'll say it again. If you go through this in a week, you pick up a belt of knowledge. I don't think that um, he wrote the footnotes in the original. And so it would have to be for whoever's the Magad Shir or something like that. 
if they care. But nobody really cares except a scholar what the sources are. So if I tell you a good word from Parshas this week is Ekev, for the regular person, they don't care. What's it? You say, who said that? The Akedah. Oh, okay. The Barbano. Oh, okay. The Pre-Tor. Okay. They don't care. Nobody asks those questions. Right? It's a good word. Then it sticks with you, or you say it over, or whatever. That was the, um, the builder bit. So he must have been a very firm person because it means, let's put it this way, he put himself second. <clears throat> he emerges, because he died young, he emerges as somebody whose name is never associated as a great rabbi because of his own publications. People say, Yaakov Kohli, say, oh, man, I'm Lois. But they think it's just a popular work. And people make the gigantic mistake of thinking that putting out a quality popular work doesn't require too much scholarship on your part, which is very wrong. Same thing with making fun of the guy with the Santorino. The same thing with with anything like that. It's it's hard to do this. That's number one. Number two, Yaakov Kuhl, if you know a little bit more, and some people know a little bit more, oh, he published the, the Mishnah Melech books, uh, which is huge, Mishnah Melech and the Parshish Trachem. But it sounds like he's a good editor. You know what I mean? I mean, it's a talent, no question about it. But the editors don't get much credit. The the, the Mishnah Melech himself gets the credit. And as I said, it's not really true. You have to be very, very learned to be able to edit successfully in Mishnah Melech, plus your own talents, you know, as a writer, as an editor. So he clearly put put others first. I'll never know, did he do it because of Parnosa reasons, or did it because that was his nature? Uh, if you wanted to be cynical, you could say, listen, why did he do... Um, what you call it, the ma'am lois, because he met this rich guy in Constantinople, and the guy said, if you do this thing in Ladino, I'll bankroll the whole thing, I'll pay you a decent salary, and as I said before, if it takes off, you know, the money will go for Eretz Yisrael. But, it, so you could say, well, you know, all of his life he had to work as a partner for others. There may be some truth to that, or may not. It may be he was a public-spirited individual, he was a good guy, he saw to the claw, uh, as I said before, the best way to, to combat um, ignorance of Judaism and things like Sabbatianism is not to condemn and blast the others, but to provide something popular. Look, I'll give you an example. In America, what are you going to do? Write books against reform? The service is ridiculous. When they put out a stone commission, as you know, shuls all over the country. If they put out something, you know, Whoever it's not doesn't have to be art school, but art school is the biggest, or Stanzas or anybody. You put that out, that acquaints the American Jews, whoever's interested in what's out there. That's the best argument against all these, uh, you know, other denominations, sectarian groups, heretical things, and all the rest of it. You spend all your time fighting against what the other thing is. It, it, it's a losing battle. If you just provide people, I mean, the Gemara says this. In Pogacha, what's it called? Menovozem, Moshchelel, Beis HaMedrash, Hamor, Shebetor, Machzir, Lomotov. The best cure of argument is to get somebody in a learning environment. I, you'll still have kashas. Big deal. It's true. And some people will be turned off by the kashas. It's true. But most people in Kiruv will tell you, most people in Kiruv will tell you, that for most people, you can't be involved in learning. It has its own power. So that's what this guy did. Now, he did it in an 18th century way, not in a 21st century way. And he didn't use the modern technology and so on and so forth. He did it the old-fashioned way that he just knew everything 
but he was very talented in how he um, put it together because he weaves all this material together. Um, it became a way of acquainting the public with, uh, you know, the Shulchan Aruch to the degree that they could handle it. In other words, long before anybody started the modern movement of writing Chayotam, Shulchan Aruch, Kitzah Shulchan Aruch, Mishnah and all that kind of stuff, here's a guy taking a different twist and doing it, because that's what he's doing, doing it through the medium of the Parsha Shavua and, and, and non-Hebrew and Ladino. It, like, if you ask me like this, who was the first kid to Shulchan ever? I don't think it would be a mistake to say to Ma'am Lois, unless I'm forgetting something. You understand? I mean, uh, it's an unusual system of organization, but it's, it is a system of organization. In other words, you know, Hilchah Shabbos will be in the Chumash where they talk about Shabbos. Hilchah uh, Yom Kippur will be, you know, over there in Vayikra. Right? Things like Hilchah Nida will be, you know, also in Vayikra. It's a certain way of organizing information. And, excuse me, and it'll be in 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 uh, English or in that time Ladino. And the, the, the result is that people know what to do. So, I just think it's very interesting when you uh, focus, usually in Jewish history, in the from Jewish history, what they call the gedolim. The gedolim is, is, is usually a function of publication. A lot of times the gedolim didn't publish their own books. Uh, a lot of t- and if it was up to them, the the editing process should be uh, invisible. Uh, so that if I look at a safer, I don't see, you know, who wrote the Marshal? Uh, Marshal wrote the Marshal. I... Who do you give it to edit and all the rest? I don't know. I don't care. I get that. But if you want to go a little deeper, who wrote the Marshal? Who wrote the Marshal? You know, who wrote the tour? All the rest of it. Uh, a lot of times, uh, there's the invisible Cooley in there. <laughs> this guy, Yaakov Cooley. By the way, the reason he called Ma'am Loes is his name is Yaakov. So it's Batesiro Mimitzram based Yaakov Ma'am Loes. Um, how's it go? Chuli is Chuli, get it? He says this, not me. So it's and Chuliars, and he's Yaakov Chuli. I guess that's the most anyone to pronounce it. We say Chuli because of Chav. Um, but the Yaakov Chulis out there are like a. I don't want to say unsung heroes because that's a cliche. But you know what I mean. The people who make things happen, they don't necessarily uh, notice them as much. In this particular case, he's more noticed, but I would describe him as an archetype for a certain type um, in the history of rabbinical literature. Anyway, with that, once again, we want to thank the sponsors. I hope we get somebody this week for the Parsha and the Haftorah. And with that, I wish you all a good week. By the way, today... If you're in Baltimore, I'll say it again. In my show at 5 o'clock, we're having the Achnaz uh, Sefer Torah. We're going to be having something at 3 o'clock. Eitan Shulchan's house. And um, I've got a busy day ahead of me. So have a good week. Sunday morning. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com